turn in our Bibles to John chapter 18. And if you do need a Bible this morning, if you don't have one, the ushers have some Bibles available. Get their attention so you can have a copy of the Scripture for yourself to see God's Word and you'll get much more out of it as we study it together that way. This morning we're going to pick up where we left off uh, in John chapter 18 and verse 15. We're actually going to work our way through the end of the chapter, uh, a little more lengthy section than we normally do. And, and then the next two weeks afterwards, my intention is to try and work through chapter 19, which would then have us landing uh, uniquely enough right at John chapter 20 on Easter Sunday, uh, where we can look at the resurrection right from John's gospel in our uh, study together. So I'm not going to read the entirety of the section obviously because it's more lengthy but I like to read from verse 15 down through verse uh, 27 or so just to set the context and would you as we do stand with me as respect for the word of God as I read our portion of scripture 18 verse 15 says and Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. And then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. And then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Now the high priest had asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple, where the Jews always meet. And in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said of them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priests like that? Jesus answered, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself, and therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of his servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose Peter's ear had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied again. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Father, we ask as we open the word of God now, as we continue in worship in this hour, that our submission to the voice of your spirit and to what you would say to us to the word of God would be an act of worship as everything else has been thus far. So, Lord, prepare our hearts. You know what that means and what we're asking and we pray that we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience the demonstration of your spirit and power, speaking personally and directly to each of our hearts through your word. Teach us, Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, one thing will always, always remain the same in this life, and that's very simply this, that people are always prone to fail. But God himself will always remain faithful. 
And this text and passage of scripture in front of us this morning is a very clear illustration of that very truth. We see Peter denying the Lord. We see others failing and making mistakes. And yet we see Jesus steadfast, faithful, continuing as God always is. Now, at this point in John's gospel, we're in this long night right before and leading up to Jesus's crucifixion where the Lord is kept up all night long without any sleep whatsoever. And he's subject to horrible mistreatment to suffering beyond our human imagination for hours on end. And yet we read last week in John 18, Jesus knowing all things that would come upon him, it says, he went forward. That is being in complete control of all of these things as God, even keeping the hearts beating and the lung breathing of those who were mistreating him and punching him and ultimately that will scourge him and crucify him there upon the cross. Jesus willingly entered into the sufferings he would endure, ultimately dying for the sin of the world. And he has now just submitted himself, we saw last time, to the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. He's now allowed himself to be taken into custody, arrested and bound by the authorities. And though Jesus is sinless and guiltless, he's now going to undergo six trials. John doesn't record all of them, but the gospels collectively give them to him. And in these trials of Jesus, three religious trials, three civil trials, he will be illegally and unjustly interrogated and examined. And though they bring false accusations against Jesus, each of these trials still reveal though intense in their scrutiny and examination, that Jesus is completely innocent. As we look at these things together, we'll just see through their examination of Jesus, it becomes more evident as they seek to inspect him that there's no fault found within him, that he's completely guiltless and totally sinless in every way. And in this process, understand, the plan of God is still purposely unfolding, and here's why. Because if you remember from the Old Testament, Passover lambs always had to be inspected first before they were approved to be offered as a sacrifice upon the altar. It was always necessary that the lamb had to be examined. And after the examination, if the lamb was approved, then it was acceptable to be used as a sacrifice. Well, we know the Bible teaches us that Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of the Passover. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5 says this, that Christ is our Passover, sacrificed for us. So Jesus is the lamb, the ultimate lamb. Jesus, the Bible says, is that lamb of God who was offered by God to take away the sin of the world once for all. He's the final Passover lamb. He's God's lamb being brought for this sacrifice. So what's God doing? He's allowing his sacrificial lamb to be inspected, to be examined, to be scrutinized in every way to make sure there's no spot or no blemish, just like all the Passover lambs would have to be examined to be approved as sacrifices. And what God wants to do is allow Jesus' life to be proven that he is fully acceptable to be the ultimate sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of the world, given in sacrifice through his death. First Peter 1 says it this way, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
Now, at this point, as Jesus has been arrested, we saw at the end of our text last time, he's brought not first to Caiaphas, who is the reigning high priest, but actually to Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. And Annas was the former high priest. And like a former president, he's still therefore referred to with the title of high priest, though he's not the reigning high priest. And like sometimes those who were prior politicians who still have their hands too much involved in politics and have a lot of influence, the same is true of Annas here. Annas had been the high priest for 10 years. Rome was exchanging the high priest because they didn't like a concentration of power in any one man. But since Annas had been the high priest for 10 years of history, it seems he still has a lot of influence in the religious establishment. So at this point, Jesus is first brought, it says bound, and led to Annas first, the former high priest, which is what we begin to see in our text. Pick up with me in verse 15. It says, as he's led now to Annas, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and it says, so did another disciple. And that disciple was known to the high priest, and he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside, and the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. So though initially the Bible says all the disciples flee, Jesus, in the midst of his arrest, they all abandon and forsake the Lord initially. It seems Peter and an unnamed disciple kind of regather, and we now see them here following Jesus as he's brought to the courtyard of the high priest. We're told it was Peter and an unnamed disciple. We can only speculate who that is. But this unnamed disciple, the text tells us here, was known to the high priest, meaning he had some kind of a relational connection to the high priest's family. So he kind of had a contact point, a connection. He knows somebody. So it says here that he's able to enter right into the courtyard, but Peter's stuck outside. But this disciple uses then his contact and his connection relationally to go and help Peter to be able to have access as well. It says the other disciple who was known to the high priest, he went out, verse 16, and spoke to the one who kept the door to get Peter inside to the courtyard. So he uses his relational connection for a good purpose here to help Peter out. And I look at this and I think to myself, boy, we never know, do we? how God may indeed allow for some past relational connection that we had in our life to be something later down the road that could become useful in a present hour where maybe it may play into the purposes of what we're doing or following the Lord to give us some access or favor that we may need and how God uses these things in situations and circumstances. Well, verse 17 says, The servant girl then, as Peter comes in, who kept the door, spoke to Peter, saying to him, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter replied, I am not. So here we see in verse 17, Peter's first denial of Jesus as he becomes too cowardly in this moment to admit that he's a follower of Jesus among the unsaved for fear of their response towards him and what they might think of him or even say to him or even worse, do to him. Now let me remind you briefly of a conversation that happened a few hours earlier this same night between Jesus and 
and Peter. Luke records it in chapter 22, verse 31 to 34. It says, The Lord had said to Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you. That's never a good thing. That he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And he said to Peter, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you even know me. So Jesus clearly predicted to Peter that he was going to fail. And Peter didn't like the thought that he could possibly fail. Others fail, but Peter never fails. I mean, I'm a strong follower of Jesus. Yes, I see other people sin and fail, but, but Lord, I mean, I may stumble, but I would never deny you. I would, and he says, Peter, before the day's over, this is how well you don't know yourself and how well I do know you, Peter, before the day's over, you are going to deny me not once, but three times. So Peter had always felt so confident about the surety of his commitment level to Jesus. And I think he probably sincerely meant it. He thought despite anything, he would never fail the Lord, certainly in a grievous way, yet being a man prone to human weakness, having a sinful nature as we all still do, even though we may choose to follow Christ. Look what happens here. Peter loses courage. He backpedals and take notice, not at the drawn sword of a scary Roman soldier, but it tells us here in verse 17, look at it, he falters and stumbles under way less pressure. He falters and stumbles probably under the question of what would be probably like a preteen little girl who asks him if he knows Jesus. I mean, is that probably the worst possible contrast? I mean, it's not that a Roman soldier's got a sword to Peter's neck. A little preteen girl says, are you a follower of Jesus? Uh, no, I'm not a follower of Jesus. And he just he cowardly loses and bottoms out right on this. And this is just one of those times where the Bible holds before us, I think, a great lesson. Oftentimes, like Peter, is it not true? We have to come to the sober realization in our own lives, even as followers of Jesus, that we're not sometimes quite as strong spiritually as many times maybe we think that we are. Or, let me go further, perhaps we're not just as committed to Jesus as we like to give the impression that we are. And Peter here becomes a fitting example of that very reality. Sometimes we find these things out to sort of humble us and sober us up a little bit. Verse 18 says, Now the servants and officers who made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves. And Peter, we now read, stood with them and warmed himself at the same fire there that they were around. Now, boy, it seems from what I've observed in my life and the lives of others that it becomes a very common pattern that one compromise and one concession in our spiritual lives and commitment to Jesus will often lead to guess what? a further and a continuous downward spiral spiritually. And here's Peter. He makes one little compromise. He denies the Lord. 
And the very next thing we see, notice now Peter is standing together with the unsaved and even finding enjoyment warming himself at the enemy's fire. And we find Peter here in this moment trying to blend in among the world, live as if he's just like everyone else. And he's no different than anyone else around him, though he's probably the only one in the courtyard that's a follower of Jesus. But yet he's trying to blend in and be like everyone else. We find him entering into fellowship with those who are actually against the Lord. And what's he doing here? He's joining into the exact same activities as everybody else around him. And he's participating in all the things comfortably that everyone else around him does in the world when the reality is, is Peter has a completely different commitment and follows Jesus and everyone else does not. And yet here is Peter. He's made one concession and now all of a sudden that sort of creates a spiral effect where now he's participating in the same thing all those who don't follow Jesus do. He's warming himself at the enemy's fire. He's no doubt engaging in the conversation and here he is now blending in, trying to in every way he can be just like everyone else around him. And this is always a sad thing. Once, listen, once we start denying and hiding that we are a follower of Jesus, once we begin to do that, it soon follows that we will find ourselves gravitating into the same activities that everybody else in the world is doing. We start becoming like a chameleon Christian. You know, when we're around fellow believers, praise the Lord, hallelujah, let's talk about the Bible and be excited with Jesus. But then we find ourselves making that initial compromise or concession because we want approval. Or we want to seem cool with our friends or have the acceptance or not be mocked or made fun of. And then before we know it, the downside of that is it sort of makes us become very vulnerable then to just blend in. Look, you might as well up front just say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. Take the initial brunt, but that initial brunt will be way better than the pain and the grief and the regret you may find yourself experiencing down the road when then all of a sudden now you're engaging and participating and joining in things that you know you should have never got involved in. And like Peter here, that one concession, now we find him just behaving like the rest of those around him, joining in their affairs. Well, verse 19 says the high priest then admits this occasion, now turns and asks Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. So the scene is sort of shifting back and forth here between Peter's unfaithfulness in the courtyard and Jesus' complete faithfulness to the will of God. At this point, the first religious trial where interrogation starts. And it should be noted as you look at these religious trials that are taking place, they are in total violation of Jewish law. If you read Jewish law and even their customs, things in their Mishnah, their Talmud, they were never supposed to hold trials at night. Violation number one. They were never supposed to accuse a man without at least two eyewitnesses of what they were saying was the charge having come forward first. Violation number two. They bring Jesus and begin to accuse him without any eyewitnesses there to start with. And Annas now starts to examine Jesus, it says, of what he believed and taught spiritually, <clears throat> excuse me, because he's looking for something that he can use to accuse Jesus to indicate that he's a criminal and deserves execution. Well, verse 20, Jesus answered him and said, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and 
in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, Jesus says, I've done nothing. So Jesus affirms his way of ministering and teaching had nothing secretive in nature about it. As he's asked what he taught and what he believed, Jesus says, look, I did all things openly. I did everything above board. I, I not only honored the scriptures, but he even graciously observed Jewish customs. He said, when I taught, I taught in the places where the Jews always meet, in the synagogues, in the temple. His teachings were open and available to all people. There was nothing he was trying to hide. He wasn't trying to exclude anyone from his ministry. He wasn't giving secret insights to spiritual things that were only for a select group of people somehow. He, he wasn't operating in secretive ways. Please take notice, there was no need to hide anything and there was no need to cover anything up in the way that our Lord worked. And let me just say, by way of application, that should always be the case in any work that is genuinely of the Lord. There should never be any element of secrecy there should never be any need to kind of cover things up or kind of hide what's going on and not disclose it or let it get out. My, my question would be this. The Bible shows that God is a God of revelation. God does all things in the open. God does things in the light, never in the dark. So if there ever is a time when things are being done or not shared openly or secrecy is needed or we got to hide things or cover things up, we should say, why? Why is that? Why, why can't there be an... And, and, and this is something that I think we have to be careful of. If things are being done in a righteous manner, there's really not a reason to hide anything. Uh, things should be evident. Things should be in the open here. And Jesus says, look, I, I taught openly. He says, verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me. They could tell you, he says, what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. So he says, why are you asking me about things that are clearly known to everyone? You could directly ask anyone in Israel, he's saying. Any of the Jews could bear witness to what I taught and tell you openly. Jesus here is sort of exposing what is true of their ulterior motive. Recognizing that the reason they're asking this is they're just kind of fishing for a reason to find some accusation. And perhaps you've experienced before when you can tell somebody's asking you a question, why are you really asking me that question? I've been in those kind of conversations before. Where you can almost, they're asking a question. You're not really asking the question because you want the answer to that. The reason you're really asking that question, and this is kind of what's going on here. Jesus, in essence, is saying to them, since it's clear what I taught, why are you really asking me these questions? What are you, what are you searching for to try and turn over? Well, verse 22, look what happens. When Jesus said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, slapped him across his face in front of everyone, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Now, not that it should shock us, but yet I can't help but to be shocked by the reality of what's going on. This officer doesn't like that somehow Jesus has kind of just brought to the light what's going on here and exposed them maybe a little shame or humiliation, though he didn't do it in a rude way. So he kind of tries to rough Jesus up here a little bit. He gives Jesus a slap as a bound prisoner now. His hands are bound. He slaps Jesus, insulting him, and, and really harming him right in front of everyone. And I can't help but to step back and to think, wow, I mean, did that guy 
at some point before his life was over, did he at some point maybe step back and, and just think about in his arrogance and in his anger what he actually did and have some level of remorse or regret about what he did that he think, I can't believe what I did that day. I, I, I can't believe as a sinful man, I slapped God himself right in the face and ashamed him in front of everyone and, and abused and disrespected him publicly thinking I'm so right in my selfish arrogance. But yet let's be honest with ourselves. Perhaps we can all look back at times in our lives where maybe we behaved in a way that it was kind of like a slap in the face to God. And we did something or did some things or were invited. And, and the reality being like right in the face, it, it would be equivalent to just like a slap in the face to God. Just utterly disgracing him, insulting him and just sort of disregarding our Lord. What a sad thing. And boy, how sad and grievous that it is to have to come to that recognition. Oh my goodness, Lord. I mean, that, that was like a slap in the face to you. Oh Lord, and just and I wonder what this man must have felt like if he recognized at some point what he had done. Well, verse twenty-three, look at Jesus' response to the sarcasm and to the slap in the face. Jesus answered, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Now talk about incredible self-control. Patience, mercy. I wish I could say I've been poked, slapped in the face and I ever responded like that. I wish. This is the Son of God. This is the innocent, righteous, holy one who did nothing wrong. And yet, he, it says here, is struck in the face and doesn't do anything in retaliation. Man, oh man, yet let's be real. How often has the Lord responded in similar ways of mercy and patience, as I said before, towards us when we sort of slapped him in his face by the way that we behaved and yet he was so merciful and showed so much patience with us when he perhaps uh, could have responded much differently in his power and his authority. How I want to, I look at this and my prayer, Lord, I, I want to grow in that kind of Christ-likeness to be able to some degree, to respond like Jesus here without anger or revenge when people sort of treat us in a disrespectful way? And, and we, boy, we're, are you going to speak to me like that? Are you going to diss me? What are you going to... And, and I mean, how quick we are when people disrespect us or dishonor us or insult us. And, and to think that we could grow in Christ-likeness as Jesus is working in our lives to actually be able to some degree have restraint when anger wants to come over us to endure something like a slap in the face and to just not respond in anger or revenge harshly. Jesus in this statement, however, when he struck, is still noticed trying to expose the sin because he does say in verse 23, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? So he's holding them account for not acting in accordance with the law of God. He's saying, look, if I've done something evil, where are the witnesses? You want to operate according to the law, there should be witnesses here. 
Where are the witnesses? If I've done something wrong, he says, why have you responded in the way that you have? Where are the witnesses? But he says, if I've done nothing wrong, why are you accusing me? And why have you just struck me in the face? Why have you just harmed me? Now, I look at this and what Jesus is doing really in verse 23, think of it, he's forcing them to confront the guilt of their own wrongdoing. And again, I think this is a beautiful demonstration of the Lord to teach us something that is a right and wise and appropriate way to act in hurtful situations because they do happen, right? People hurt us. They mistreat us. You take a slap across the face, whatever form it may be, by someone in the way they treat you. And yes, like Jesus, we should seek not to react in revenge or retaliation. However, we should still respond in a way where we don't just ignore the wrongdoing that's happened and try and act like it never happened and brush it under the rug and play hyper-spiritual. And, and no, Jesus here, he still addresses the wrongdoing. He does it in a controlled way, but he addresses and he causes the one who's guilty to do what? To face and to accept responsibility for their wrongdoing. He says, hey, if I've done nothing wrong... Can you answer me? Why did you respond the way that you did? Did you have a, a, a justification in doing that? And he still allows this to be addressed. And I think in these situations, if we want to be healthy and normal and not play super spiritual, hyper spiritual, we should still address things. Hey, uh, we still need to talk about this. If there was nothing wrong, then why did you respond like that? And, and I think this is a great example of Jesus addressing this still, but yet handling it in a righteous way. Well, verse 24 says, Then Annas takes and sends him bound over to Caiaphas, as we said, the reigning current high priest. At this point, Jesus is now brought before Caiaphas and also the Sanhedrin, and he undergoes the second and third religious trials that he endures in front of them. They try and bring false witnesses against Jesus. They try and heap accusations. None of them stand up. And it tells us that ultimately they ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the highest? To which Jesus then responds to them, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And Mark 14 says, the high priest then tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned Jesus as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him at this point. They blindfolded him and beat him, saying to him, prophesy Christ who struck you. So he endures more brutality at this point, more accusations. They blindfold him and they begin to punch him in the face with sarcasm and mocking him, saying, hey, if you're the Christ, then where did that punch come from? And they're spitting on Jesus. They now claim that he's guilty of blasphemy, claiming to be God. And as Jesus is standing strong in faithfulness to honor God amidst these trials, Peter, we see, is further crumbling under the pressure. Look as it goes on. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples. And he denied it, it says again, saying, I am not. Verse 26, and one of the servants of the high priest. This time it was a relative of the person whose ear Peter had just cut off a few hours ago. Said to Peter, did I not see you there in the garden with him? And Peter denied it again. 
and immediately a rooster crows. So here we now see, as Jesus predicted, the second and third time that Peter denies Jesus, just like Jesus predicted he would, he crumbles under the pressure and is not faithful to the Lord. Now, as we look at Peter's denials here again, as I said, it's the weakness in his flesh that overcame him. He failed the Lord. He made mistakes. The other Gospels tell us actually that when he denied Jesus the third time, he actually called down oaths and curses upon himself, basically saying, if I know this man, may I be cursed. I mean, pretty emphatically trying to validate he does not know Jesus in his strong denial. Now, take notice here as Peter enters into denial of the Lord and sin. Think of it. Peter directly lies. He bold-faced lies that he wasn't in the garden when he was. He bold-faced lies that he doesn't know Jesus at all. He gives in to the fear of man, wanting approval and acceptance to avoid rejection, to avoid suffering in his own life. He gives in to the fear of man, selfishly does what's best for himself rather than serving the Lord. And the Bible tells us in the other accounts that the moment this rooster crows there in verse 27, as Jesus said would happen, the other accounts say that Jesus looks over and Peter and Jesus, their eyes meet there in the courtyard. And it says that when Peter looks into the eyes of the Lord, it says Peter went out and wept bitterly in disappointment of the fact that he had just denied Jesus in that way. His actions and his choices caused him to be grieved. And it says he wept bitterly as a result of what he had done wrong. Peter, I think, here is a fitting reminder that we all have the potential to fail. Every one of us has the same capacity to deny the Lord. Look, if Peter did it, certainly you and I have the same potential to do the same things. If Peter, someone who was mightily used of the Lord, walked with Jesus for three years, if Peter did this, we have the same capacity. And at some point, in case you're saying, no, I won't. Listen, at some point, somebody remember I said this this day. At some point and in some way, you will fail and deny the Lord in some capacity. The prayer is, is that when that moment comes, we might be quickly convicted of our error and it may sincerely break our hearts like Peter. That we would weep over our failure. That it would break our heart and we would grieve over our sin and our denial of the Lord. And that godly sorrow would then lead us to repentance rather than continuing in the same pattern of wrongdoing. And that we would have a heart that's broken. The Bible says in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. So when you fail, when you deny the Lord, or if you've recently failed and denied the Lord, do you know what the Lord wants? Oh, he must want my bloodshed. Oh, I gotta, I gotta do all these things to atone for it. No, you know what he wants? He wants your heart to be broken. He wants your heart to genuinely be broken because if your heart is genuinely broken, that's an incredible sacrifice to the Lord because if your heart's genuinely broken, you'll repent. And you'll, you'll stop. You'll turn away if your heart's genuinely broken over it. And Peter here gives us a great reminder. Remember as well this, please hear this, 
Peter was someone used mightily of the Lord, right? In the book of Acts, this man is used incredibly, which is a great, great consolation to us. He was not a perfect man. Peter was not only not a perfect man, Peter had a major failure in his past. But he recovered. And Jesus restored him. And Jesus used him powerful, in powerful, powerful ways. And you may have a major failure in your past. You can recover. The Lord can restore you and he can use you powerfully again. Don't let a past failure prohibit you from the present ways that the Lord may want to use your life. Well, verse 28 says, They then led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. Now, the praetorium is basically the government palace where the governor of Judea, Pilate at this time, would reside during the feast because he wanted to keep an eye on the Jews to make sure there was no revolt happening there. So Jesus is now being led by the religious leaders to the Roman authorities to begin the civil trials that he will undergo. So they led him from Caiaphas over the praetorium and it was early morning, but they themselves, look at this, did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled. They didn't want to become ceremonially unclean because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So these religious men, isn't this interesting? As they bring Jesus to Pilate, the governor, they're very careful to observe the ritual of not entering a Gentile palace. Because if they mix with the Gentile pagan people, they might accidentally become ceremonially unclean and unable to observe the Passover, which is one of their major religious feasts. They're worried about maintaining religious ritual, but yet they have no conscience whatsoever about seeking to murder Jesus, who's the son of God and an innocent person. I mean, talk about a great description in the Bible of complete hypocrisy complete hypocrisy they're willing to commit blatant sin and do evil things yet they're making sure to reserve and observe excuse me their religious rituals and do we not all know this as a very familiar thing how people can live hypocritical and double lives and sometimes it's the worst in the realm of religion and spiritual matters this is sometimes where the hypocrisy is the greatest and even the most astonishing and sadly most confusing where people can live in sin openly disregarding God, disregarding clearly the word of God, living in open blatant sin, but they still zealously keep their rituals of religion. They still make sure they still follow through with certain things and, and they, and they got to still make their you know, practices. And Why? Because they're trying to pacify their own conscience. And they think somehow then that's okay. Well, I can live this way, but hey, I still did my dues or showed up when I was supposed to or said this or did. And, I'm, and it's, it's such a sad, sad form of hypocrisy. Such confusion here. They don't want to defile themselves, but yet they want Jesus murdered. Well, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? He's, you need to have a legitimate charge by Roman law. And they answered and said to him, verse 30, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. So they're aware they have no real case that Pilate would care much about. They understand Jesus isn't really a threat to Roman rule. So they insinuate they've already found Jesus worthy of death by their own law and examination. So kind of here's what they're saying. Hey, Pilate, look, 
I mean, we're just trying to help you out here by turning in a criminal to help get him off the streets for you. So we're just trying to turn him over to you here, but you're the one that's got to execute. And they said, we wouldn't bring this guy to you if he wasn't an evildoer. Again, here's the, the, a guiltless man. And their perception of him is that he's an evildoer. Great reminder that sometimes our perceptions of people are completely wrong. They're calling Jesus an evildoer and he's completely righteous. And they bring him trying to accuse him. Well, verse 31, Pilate then responds again saying to them, you take him and judge him according to your own law. He wants to wash his hands of this. He doesn't want to get entangled in their religious affairs so it says, therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. So Pilate senses what's going on, that it's an issue of jealousy and religious concerns, and he cares nothing of these things. So he wants to be dismissed of it. But they say to Pilate, look, remember the current situation under Roman rule and occupation as Jews, we have no right to execute anyone. So we're not able to do anything with him as a criminal. And they say to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We want this guy's death sentence. Now, this is interesting because, again, keep in mind, the way that the Jews executed someone, capital punishment, was by what? Stoning. The way that the Romans executed capital punishment was by crucifixion. And so the Holy Spirit points out these things all happened in this day and time historically in such a way, it says, that the saying might be fulfilled which Jesus spoke signifying by what kind of death he would die. And how did Jesus predict that he would die? Matthew 20, 18 and 19. He said, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed, turned over to the scribes. They'll condemn me to death. Turn me over to the authorities and the Son of Man will be crucified. So this was all to fulfill prophecy, to bring about clarity again of what both the Old Testament and even the words of Jesus predicted of how he would die, not by Jewish stoning, but by Roman crucifixion. Verse 33, Pilate then entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? He's saying, is it true what they're claiming of you? Are you really a king? Because that would potentially be a threat to Roman rule if they let a revolt. Well, Jesus answered Pilate and said, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? So Jesus asked Pilate, uh, can I ask a question? Is this your own idea? Is this your own perception of me that you came to on your own? Or are you just being fed this idea by my accusers who have things to say about me? Jesus says, is that what you really believe about me? Or are you just going off of what they're saying and just instantly buying into it? Now take notice here. Jesus knows how as people we function and fail in this way too in really faulty ways. Is it not true, and Jesus indicates it with Pilate here, how oftentimes people don't make their own judgments about people and situations. They just listen to the opinions of others or what somebody starts saying or their story, or their accusation, and too quickly they accept that view automatically without really taking a closer look first, and they just instantly develop a perception or a wrong outlook on a situation. And Jesus is challenging this point. Is that really what you believe? Or are you just instantly responding because of what you've heard some people say about 
the situation or about me. And he, he kind of challenges this faulty reasoning with Pilate. Well, Pilate starts to get irritated himself. He says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests, your leaders, he says, they've delivered you to me. What have you done? Notice Jesus doesn't answer because there's nothing that Jesus had done wrong. What Jesus does answer, saying verse 36, is the original question, are you a king? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So Jesus clearly indicates, notice there, that he has a kingdom, which means that Jesus is what? A king. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not a physical, earthly kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. It's an everlasting kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. And since Jesus is a king of a kingdom, it means that Jesus does have, as he says in verse 36, servants. But take notice, Jesus' servants operate in accordance with the nature of his kingdom. Jesus says here, because of the spiritual nature of my kingdom, my servants, he says, they don't fight and strive in fleshly ways to establish my kingdom or overcome. Jesus' servants don't need to use physical force or efforts or tactics to bring about the kingdom of God. We don't need to fight and strive in fleshly ways to advance Jesus' kingdom. The weapons of our warfare aren't carnal. They're mighty in God. We overcome spiritually. By faith and prayer and the word of God and letting the power of God orchestrate because the Bible says the battles belong to the Lord. And it's important really that we remember this. Right now, Jesus is establishing his kingdom. You know where he's setting up his kingdom? On the throne of people's hearts. One day he's going to return and he's going to set up his literal physical kingdom on this earth and rule and reign for a thousand years in righteousness but right now we have to remember as servants of Jesus serving our king that we don't use fleshly efforts like the world does but we operate in accordance with the law of the spirit of life by love and the weapons of our warfare which are spiritual verse 37 Pilate answered and said are you a king then Jesus answered, you rightly say that I am a king. For this cause I was, notice, born, that speaks of his humanity, and for this cause I have come into the world, which means he came what? From outside of the world. There's his deity. That I should bear witness to the truth and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Jesus accepts he's a king. He affirms it and he testifies the reason he came, he says, into this world is to bear witness of the truth. That is the revealed truth. Jesus was the embodiment of everything that's true about God. He said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And he also said, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. You've seen God. And Jesus also spoke the truth. He said in John 8, that if you remain in my word, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. So Jesus was the embodiment revelation of truth. That's why he says in verse 37, everyone who is of the truth, that is everyone who wants the truth, he's saying, if someone truly wants the truth, they want to know the truth, then Jesus says, they will hear and respond to my voice. There's the factor. Jesus says that when somebody really wants the truth, 
Because sometimes people don't really want the truth. But he says, if someone really wants the truth, here's how you'll be able to tell. They will listen to the voice of Jesus because his voice resonates the truth with the human conscience. Now, Pilate, having heard this, answered and said to him, what is truth? Boy, that question has resonated and echoed through the ages. What is truth? The unsaved world still stumbling over that question. Some ask it as an excuse not to accept absolute truth. Others ask that question sincerely wanting the truth. The reality is the truth does exist. It's found right here in the word of God. And it's found in the Son of God. As you embrace the truth in Jesus, then the eyes are open and you begin to see. Well, Pilate says, what is truth? And when he had said this, he then went out again to the Jews and said, look what he says, I find no fault in him at all. A pagan, irreligious, harsh man was wise enough to see this man is innocent. This man has no fault in his life. He testifies to the sinless life of Jesus. But you, he says, verse 39, have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. So this was a gesture of kindness at the Jews' religious celebration to try and keep things peaceful. The Roman Empire would release to them one prisoner at their high feast like this to kind of sort of pacify them. And Pilate assumed this is a perfect way to wash my hands of Jesus here. So he says, it's your custom to release a prisoner. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now, rational minds, he's thinking, would expect they're going to say, yes, we've been wrong. Give us Jesus. But verse 40 concludes saying, they all cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. And the Bible says to us, Barabbas was a robber. The other accounts tell us that Barabbas was a criminal, a rebel, a murderer, the Bible tells us as well, a notorious criminal, yet this is who they choose instead of Jesus. The other gospels say Pilate, being shocked, then says to them, well, what should I do with Jesus? At which point they then say, crucify him. Crucify him. Now, the other Gospels tell us as well that the chief priests persuaded the crowd for Pilate to do this because they wanted to destroy Jesus, to eliminate him. I want you to notice something. When people reject Jesus, that failure always leads to faulty reasoning. Always. And I leave you with this thought this morning. Maybe today you're facing a choice and maybe the Spirit of God in some ways is presenting you a choice. What do you want? What do you want? Do you want this? Do you want this relationship? Do you want this thing? Do you want this evil wrong? What do, you, do you want this? Or do you want the Lordship of Jesus? My encouragement, choose wisely. Choose wisely. Let's stand. Let's pray together.